Let's pray together, shall we? Lord our God, as we uh, enter into the great vision of the world and of its Christ, found in the book of Revelation, I pray that these uh, great images, these, uh, these uh, difficult passages, would not seem so impenetrable to us, that we would be encouraged by them, that we would see indeed that these do give testimony to Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as we do so, and even as we look at the letters to the seven churches, we might take the encouragement, that we might have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, that the vision of Christ might indeed be our vision, that uh, those who have become lax would take heed in the vision of a him whose eyes are blazing fire. Those whose love has grown cold, remember that you are the one who holds the churches and its leaders in your hands. Lord, we pray that we would enter, therefore, into an academic exercise, but also into a time of seeing your lordship over all of history. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're working our way through the uh, book of Revelation, and just to review for a moment from last time, said our strategy for approaching the book is to try to do our best to cope with it. First, we're going to confess that the book is difficult. Then we're going to orient to the basics. That's O. P, present the themes that run through all the book. And E, explain the exegetical options as best we can. Last time we were at, we did C. C just took that long, confess that it's difficult. And we were done with point one, which I always like to cover one whole point in about one minute. And now we're orienting ourselves to the basics of the book, which include things like, who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Revelation? Apostle John. And next, what is it? It is a book of prophecy. It's a book of apocalyptic revelations of Christ. It is a book that is also a pastoral letter written to seven real churches. When was it written? Who was the emperor at the time of the writing of Revelation? Remember, are you with me? Okay, Domitian. And what was Domitian's claim to fame? He claimed to be God and wanted people to acknowledge that. It also seems that the book of Revelation was written perhaps uh, late in the first century. For one thing, Domitian reigned from 81 to 96 AD. Another thing that kind of fits that idea is the book of Revelation seems to have a lot of illusions at least. Maybe citations, not quite citations, but allusions to teachings found in the rest of the New Testament. And um, concentrations, especially like in the letters of Hebrews and Corinthians, which make it seem that maybe John knew what was in those letters to the Corinthians or to the Hebrews. And they have those citations in front of you. Book of Revelation also has a who question, a what question, a when question. When is the book of Revelation going to be fulfilled? I was out of town for this uh, this weekend, but uh, basically as soon as I got on campus, uh, some students began to tell me about the big gambling casino event over the weekend. In fact, one of my students greeted me and said, Well, Dr. Doriani, we saw you uh, trying to cover your face hopping off the Admiral. And I said, No, see, I'm not really guilty of that because I, I have a perfect alibi. I was in another state. When that happened, it was kind of uh, amusing, I guess, to us when, you know, when you, you know, they got their comeuppance, huh? 
you know, a, a barge breaks loose and crashes in. I understand that, that some people inside were really panicking heavily. It's the Titanic. We're, we're going down. It's, we, how stupid of us to get in a metal ship. Metal sinks when it fills with water. We're going to be at the bottom of the Mississippi. Well, Christian sermons, maybe, maybe at least homileticians who operate on the spur of the moment, you know. When did it happen exactly, by the way? When was it again? Saturday night, you know. So, so you know, preachers who are relying on late-night inspiration might have worked that into their sermons and might have worked that and very little else into their sermons. I don't know. Um, but you could imagine, could you not, a sermon in which uh, maybe somehow a sermon about the evils of the day, a, uh, a preacher would sort of go off in a prophetic direction and say something like this about uh, the gambling industry. You might say, you know, God has judged the gambling industry. It preys on the weak. It preys on the poor and on those who have no hope, those who don't know how to manage their finances. It breaks homes. The women know, the children know, but somehow the man, or maybe somehow the wife, doesn't know, doesn't see what it's doing. And they go back again and again, thinking at last I'm going to make up for all that money that I've lost. It enslaves threats, breaks down the social fabric. And you know, they're ruthless. They break the law. They're supposed to go only on, on, river boat, on the river, but they, they go on moats and they moor themselves to the side. And they say that's legal. And then when a local politician takes them to task and they suddenly decide to find some candidates to uh, threaten that politician uh, by throwing a lot of money at an alternative person who will uh, be more amenable. God has judged the gambling industry. God sees how it preys on the poor. And it shall fall, the preacher says. One day it shall fall. Now what time frame is the preacher operating in? What's the time reference of his oration on God's judgment of the gambling industry? Future, one day it shall fall. Present, God sees what it's doing to the people, right? And, and it's past. How is it past? He has judged. God has already determined. Prophetic literature moves like my little pseudo-sermonette on gambling effortlessly from past to present to future. Why? Because God sees past, present, and future. He has judged. And his word will come to pass, and he sees and evaluates what's happening right now. That's what prophets do. And that's the way the book of Revelation is. Those who say that the book of Revelation is about the future are not understanding what prophecy is. Prophecy always, not every last oracle, you understand, but that's the nature of prophecy, to look to the past, to look to the present, to look to the future, and see what God has to say about all three. The book of Revelation is prophecy. The prophecy looks at all three time frames. Now, for some of you who may be inclined to think when I say that, that you're disagreeing with me, of course, you're, you're free to do that. And, and it, you may be thinking, well, you know, I've always taught and I've always been taught, I've always held that the book of Revelation is mostly about the future, perhaps about the great tribulation, things that come at the end of the time. But if you yourself have taught on the book, and if you've been taught well on the book, if you read the best sources, even those who say the book of Revelation, by the best sources, I mean the best scholars, 
to say the book of Revelation is mostly about the future, I ask you to look closely and listen closely, and you will see that the best scholars say it's about the future, but it has these implications for the present day. Why? Because God's will and God's evaluation is always based on his holiness and on his justice and his love and his mercy. God looks at human sin the same way, no matter whether it's now or in the future. So you look at good scholars, and they'll do that. And you listen to good sermons. Can you nod your head if you agree with me? Good sermons on the book of Revelation. Don't just say, here's what's going to happen at the end. Even if someone thinks the book of Revelation is mostly about the end, they say, there are principles that apply today. Am I right? Have you heard that? Most of you have heard that, I think, probably. Maybe almost all of you have heard that idea. And, and if they're thinking clearly, they'll also say that the book of Revelation is about the past. It, it looks back to the past. Let's take a look at that just for a moment, if you would, and, and look back at, for example, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 would be one of a few indications that the book is about the past. What is Revelation 12 about? 12.1 says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven... A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Another sign appeared, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns in his head. He swept the stars from the sky, and he wanted to devour the child. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Whose birth is this about? It's about Jesus' birth. This is a message about the incarnation. It's about Satan's desire to destroy the Christ child even at his birth. Right? Now, just a little quickie here. If you ever get kind of tired of giving messages on, uh, you know on Matthew 2 and Luke 2 at Christmas season? You want to take a little bit of a risk? <laughs> Teach on Revelation 12. Uh, maybe not at Christmas Sunday. You know, people might be, think you're a little strange. But, you know, maybe you could work it in for, you know, a couple of the, of the early uh, Sundays during the season. But Revelation 12 is about the past. It's about Christ's incarnation. But certainly it's about the present. We'll see that abundantly tonight. Uh, above all, in the seven letters where it says over and over this is what the spirit is saying to the churches it's what the spirit was saying then and it's what the spirit continues to say the letters to the seven churches are letters to real churches that existed then but it's also letters to the way churches are to this day it's what the spirit is saying and he who has ears to hear let him hear let him hear right now and, of course, we could think of chapter 4 and 5, the scenes which we'll look at later tonight, in which Christ is worshipped and God is worshipped on his throne. And isn't that what happens now, every Sunday? In a sense, you might say, as a reenactment of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, it's about the present. Of course, Revelation is also about the future. It's about, especially in the later chapters, 19, 20, 21, it's about the fall of Satan. It's about, the, about his overthrow, about him being... A cast in the lake of fire, and about the coming of the new heavens and new earth. And that's clearly about the future, since that has not yet occurred. So the book of Revelation is about the past and the present and the future.
Okay, where, who, what, when, where? Where? Let's talk about where next. Where are we in the book of Revelation? Well, John is in the island of Patmos when he wrote, correct? It's a, a mining colony, a, by this time, apparently an abandoned mining colony off the coast of Ephesus. But that's not the only place that John was. Where else was he? Bob? Robert? In the Spirit. He was in the Spirit. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Where else was he? He's lifted up in heaven. He saw heaven opened. Right. So he's in heaven. and He's in the Spirit. And it's also taking place, you might say, in Asia Minor, where the various churches were actually receiving this. Another question we could ask is how. We're still orienting ourselves to the book. How does the book work? How does the book strike you? Can I ask you? I know uh, we have kind of a large class, but how does the book strike you? How does it work? Does, does the book of Revelation work about the same way, well, let's say, the book of Judges works or Second or, or Kings? Does it work? Does it have its impact on the reader about the way the book of Romans does? How does it work? What would be an analogy to the way it works? It doesn't. <laughs> oh, that's one answer. How does it, for those of you that get something out of the book, how does it work? Highly sensory. You agree with that? See heads nodding? I like that answer. Yeah. What, what media, what medium of communication would the book of Revelation be like that we use today? Visual, like movies I hear a couple of people saying. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's about right. I mean, it has, you know, when the movie's over and the lights come on, you say, wow, what a... You know, maybe some fantastic uh, voyage to outer space or inner space or something like that. It strikes us not with ideas. There's not a lot of therefores and because in order that the way the Book of Romans has it, right? It's a book that operates by appealing to us, by sort of even striking or even overloading our senses. A book of imagery. There's another way that it works. It works by immersion in the Scriptures. Book of Revelation has almost no quotes of the rest of the Bible, but it has hundreds of allusions, clear allusions. One author said there are 404, and I checked him out enough to know that he's pretty reliable, but I didn't check all 404. He didn't list all 404, actually. And then thousands of allusions through chains of, for example, references to Babylon, which comes up dozens and dozens of times in the Bible and drinking of the cup, and the reign of God, and the wrath of God, and the Lamb of God, and white garments, and smoke, and thunder. Hundreds and hundreds of images. Some of those images, a large number of them, and I have them in the outline in front of you, a large number of the images dominate whole chapters. For example, chapter 1 has the dominant image of a son of man in glory. Where does that come from? It comes from Daniel chapter 7, doesn't it? And then uh, in chapter 2, there's the image uh, that's pretty important of the book of life, which can be found in Ezekiel 32 and Isaiah 22. We have a throne in heaven surrounded by living creatures who are worshiping. What does that remind you of from the Old Testament? Isaiah chapter 6, right? Very similar. And also Ezekiel chapter 1. We have a scroll that has to be opened. seems a lot like Zechariah 5. And in chapter, that's uh, chapter 5 of Revelation, chapter 6, 
We have horses and riders running throughout the earth. Do you know where that comes from? What book of the Bible? What chapter? Yeah, you have it in front of you, so you all know. Do any of you know what book and chapter of the Bible that comes from? Together? Zechariah 6. It comes from Zechariah 6. And then we have a lion from the tribe of Judah from Genesis 49. And horses, and, oh, sorry, we have sealing. Sealing is described in Ezekiel 9 and Ephesians 1. And you can look at the rest there. Uh, certainly the idea of a composite beast in chapter 13 is very similar to Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And the fall of Babylon and Babylon's wealth comes up over and over again in Isaiah 14, 13, 46, 48, 21, various chapters in Daniel. Not only are there hundreds of images from the Bible, from the rest of the Bible, but they are dominant images. That's my point. They're ones that dominate whole chapters of the Old Testament. That's how the book works. Well, how should we interpret the book? That's the next thing we have to do, eh? Why don't we go ahead? Would you say it would be a good thing to uh, look at a hard passage? I've been making it sound pretty easy so far, haven't I? Have I deluded any of you into thinking this is easy? No? You're too sophisticated. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. Tell me how you, uh, how you like this one in terms of you know, difficulty ratings or something. Revelation chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like those of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree. Now, those are odd locusts, aren't they? But only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. I wonder what that might mean. And the agony they suffered was like the, that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair, so far so good, eh? Their hair was like women's hair, human faces, women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. Now we're, now we're going south here. Now they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. Should we think of the you know, Wagnerian operas here? Uh, they tried to depict this. And the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. Now, any of you have been to a prophecy seminar know what this is, don't you? What is this? Come on, somebody say it. Helicopters. Not just helicopters. It's Apache helicopters. I mean, people have been in my face about this. Were you in Nam, man? As I was in Nam, and I saw, this is it. This is it. I mean, people have been in my face. These are Apache helicopters. That's exactly what they sound like. Breastplates of iron sea, thundering of horses. They had tails. That's helicopters, of course, you see. 
and stings like scorpions in their tails. That's the, the gun in the back of the helicopter. They had the power to torment people for five months. No comment on how helicopters do that. They had as their king over them the angel of the abyss. Now the helicopter theory begins to break down. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. Well, that's a hard one, isn't it? Now, can we make sense of this? What I'd like to do is propose uh, just the four theories that I've outlined to you last time, right? Tell you how they, would, how they would interpret this vision of the locust plague and so on. A preterist would say that the events outlined here describe something that was happening right then or in the recent past to the seven churches. They would say, perhaps above all, that this would be an oppression of the Roman Empire directed against the church. The futurists would say, no, no, no. This is all about the last few years, the great rebellion before the end of time. And when somebody says these are attack helicopters, what they're also saying is we're in the last days. And these helicopters, this kind of helicopter, will be used in the Battle of Armageddon or something like that. Third view is that this represents something from the history of the church. We're in chapter 9. There are 21 chapters, 22 chapters rather, in the book of Revelation. So this would be something sort of before the year 1000 A.D. And what they'll pick is maybe something like the Muslim invasion of Europe. And they would remark on the way in which it caused great suffering and great warfare. And, and uh, there was a ferocity to those warriors and they caused great harm to the church. Which, those statements are true, of course. They would say this is about, it's about the 7th century and the 8th century, uh, sorry, uh, 8th, 9th, and 10th century, 700s, 800s, 900s. The idealist says you're all correct. There's a fulfillment of this in the past. There's a fulfillment of this in the future, final times. And, and this locust plague also played itself out, at least occasionally, in the history of the church. Those are the views that people would take. Now, let's see if we can uh, detect the way in which this works. Would I have in your syllabus um, the various images, and then I have a, a right? I don't tell you what they mean. So what I want you to do is, uh, is be engaged with me, okay? I know you're still recovering from daylight savings time, but I want you to engage, all right? Would you tell me the symbolism that is the root of each of these symbols? That's what we're going to do. We're going to look for symbolic meaning and, and see if they apply. The very first symbol is that of a star falling from the sky. What do you know from the Bible? Satan falling from heaven, found in, what are you thinking of? You think of the Old Testament or New Testament? Old Testament, but there is also from the New Testament, Beulah. What's from, where is it in the New Testament, do you know? It's in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. It's also in the Old Testament as well. Okay, so let's suppose that the star falling from the sky is accurately identified as Satan, because that's the biblical imagery here. Number two, we have... Uh, the star being given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now, what is the abyss? In the Bible, what's the abyss? It's hell. Can you get more specific than that? 
Okay, sometimes the sea is viewed as sort of an abyss in which people are swallowed up. There's something more specific in the New Testament. A subcategory under hell, or a particular way of describing hell. Maybe that's too refined a question. Maybe I should have been happy with hell. It is especially the abode of demons. For example, when uh, the Gadarene demoniac is accosted, or actually he comes running up to Jesus, and the demons speak, you know the man who had legion of demons in him? <clears throat> what do they say to Jesus? Don't cast us into the abyss. That's the abode of demons in their punishment. Not a lot of references to that, but a handful at least. And a number of them in the book of Revelation, chapter 9, verse 11, chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, chapter 11, verse 7, chapter 17, verse 8, as well as Luke 8, 31. Okay, so Satan is cast into the abode of demons. Well, then from that abode, it says that there is darkness and smoke rising. Where do we have smoke rising earlier in the Bible? I hear a number of people saying softly, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? True? Is that the first time we have smoke rising? The smoke of those cities going up? That's true. There is another place where smoke rises, though. Mount Sinai here. I'm, I'm always, I'm, I like this. I'm going to wait until two or three people say it. Then I'll feel I have a quorum. Mount Sinai is absolutely right. Now, what would Mount Sinai and Sodom and Gomorrah have in common? How could they both be the source? Well, what, what, why did the smoke rise from Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay, because of judgment, because of burning, because of judgment. And was there an element of judgment at Mount Sinai? There was. Remember, who could touch the mountain? Who could go up into God's presence? Moses. And, and one of the words was, no one can touch this holy mountain. And in fact, it inspired fear. And in fact, one of the things, if even an animal touched the mountain, it was to be stoned to death. Remember that? Because God is a holy God and Israel is not a holy people. Therefore, beware of the judgment that can befall. So smoke rising and darkness are symbols of judgment. Genesis 19, 28, Exodus 19, 18, and so on. All right, next we have uh, not only smoke rising, like smoke from a furnace and, and darkness, but out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth. Now, do locusts figure in any, in any uh, very important and apocalyptic passages, maybe about judgment or, or about uh, things of that nature? Where do we have locusts in the Bible? Okay, we have locusts in the Exodus. And what did the locusts do? What were they part of? They're part of the ten plagues. What did the ten plagues do to Egypt? They destroyed, they judged, they showed God's wrath against Egypt, right? All right, now, any other place that we have locusts? Okay, I've heard one person say it. Wait till I hear two or three. Joel, Joel, Joel. Very good, the book of Joel. Um, the locusts are associated with punishment for sin. Coming in and punishing a land for their evil doing as a warning of the greater wrath to come. That's what locusts do. They, they, they strip the land, they, they uh, take all the vegetation, they punish the people. So locusts are agents of God's judgment. Exodus 10, Joel 2. Now the next thing that comes up, it says that they have uh, power like scorpions of the earth. I don't, I, scorpions really don't appear in the Bible much at all. In fact, they don't appear at all in the Old Testament. 
or, or they don't seem to have any symbolic weight anyway in the Old Testament. So let's pass over scorpions for a moment. Then it says a strange thing in verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Seal of God. Where do you, where do you hear about the seal of God protecting people from harm? Go ahead. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says we're sealed. How are we sealed? Sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption and so on. We're protected. Is there anywhere else that seals show up in the Bible? This would be for, I think, for about 10,000 bonus points. You need 500,000 to get one extra point in your test. Um, 10,000 bonus points. What about the covenant? Now, that's, that's a question. That's not an answer. I want an answer, not a question. Where do you find seals? Yes? On the scrolls. Okay, come here for a little bit. Where else? Okay, tombs are sealed. Yes, that's it. Seals giving protection. Yes, yes, the sealing of document. That's true, but there's another one. There's a better one. Passover. Now we're getting warm. That's right. The Passover provides a protection over the people. It's not exactly called a seal, but then I heard a couple of people saying, yeah, that's what I want to say. So you, and that's good, because the Passover provided a kind of a seal over a house, a mark over a house, that led them to being passed over. Just as Ephesians chapter 1 is sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, so protected for that day, so the Passover meant there's a passing over of wrath, which is the subject here, right? Wrathful judgment. So here's protection from wrathful judgment. But there's more. Robin? No, you got it? I thought you saw your hand up. Okay, there's one more. I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 9. This is where the image really comes from. makes me feel so good that you didn't get it. Nobody got it. So it proves that you still need me to teach you. Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9 describes, well, it's chapter 8 and 9 together, but let me just tell you briefly, chapter 8 of Ezekiel is about idolatry in the temple, detestable idolatry, even in the very temple of God and God's wrath as he reveals uh, these detestable acts of God's own leaders right there in the temple. And he's going to call judgment down upon the people. Let me maybe get a little context. Chapter 9, verse 3. Now the glory of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. And the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit and said, Go through the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. Verse 5. As I listened, he said, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Could be translated the seal. Beginning at my sanctuary, so they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. That would be those elders who were corrupted by the idolatry in the temple. You see the point. This is this passage is, is strongly building on Exodus. This is the way is, this is the way uh, Revelation works. You've got a symbol, the Passover, that a couple of you had exactly right. That starts it off. The idea that there's judgment on wickedness, but God will mark His believers, and whoever has the mark will not suffer judgment. Okay. Ezekiel continues that theme by saying it's time for wrath upon the people of Israel, but those who lament the detestable things shall be marked. And when the judgment goes forth, and you know the judgment on Jerusalem was terrible, 
And it came during Ezekiel's lifetime, just a few years after Ezekiel 9. And, and vast numbers were killed. Those who lament shall be sealed, protected, guarded. They won't fall. And that, I believe, is what we have as a symbolic value of Revelation chapter 9. The seal that marks people out or protects people from the judgment to come. They shall not be harmed, verse 4 says. Now, what about these locusts? What do they do? Well, they don't kill, but for five months they torture people. Now, does anybody, can, does anybody remember a time that five months are, are marked out or singled out in the Bible? Can anybody remember that? For 20,000 bonus points, but be careful because you can lose 20,000 bonus points if you, if you guess that there's one and there isn't. Can anybody think of five months anywhere? I can't. I don't think five months are in there. In fact, I looked it up in my concordance, and it doesn't have it either. So I don't think five months is symbolic. So what might that mean? Well, here's where you need a good commentary and or knowledge of flora and fauna. How long does a locust live, maximum? Take a wild guess. Five months. The point is, there will be the maximum possible punishment as, as the locusts have their maximum lifespan. Then he says something else. So I take this then not to be symbolic, but rather referring to what people might have known from the day. Uh, agony is like the agony of a scorpion. Everybody knows what that is, very severe. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. This idea of longing for death is found a few times, especially in Job chapter 3, verses 20 to 23, where he's weary of life and wishes to die. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 3, makes it a sign of punishment. And can I ask you to, to just think about this one with me a little bit? People longing for death, but death eluding them. I'll never forget a time when I was, um, I was, just, I was just running down a street. I was running. And I, I happened upon a car with an older person getting out of it. And he kind of was struggling to get out of this car. And he, he looked at me as I, you know, was just running for my exercise, you know, jogging by. And he looked at me. I was maybe 32 or, 30, I don't know, 35 maybe. He looked at me and said, whatever you do, don't get old. I had no idea who he was. He had no idea who I was. He just... Maybe he was watching me cruise effortlessly. You know, I ran a whole block during the time that it took him to get out of the car. And he lamented that. How many of you had somebody tell you that? Whatever you do, don't get old. Okay, a few of you have heard people say that to you. But now some of these people who say, you know, I hate being old. I can't stand being old. Whatever you do, don't get old. Some of these people who don't like being old didn't like being young either. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? Say, man, I can't stand being old and retired. So, well, you know, would, I, I've asked people this once or twice. Would you like to go back to being young again? Would you like to be a teenager again? It's a teenager. Pimples and dating and not having money and under the parents' orders. Well, would you like to be in college again? Man, I didn't get, you know, they didn't get to go, whatever. They didn't like college. Would you like to be a young married person? Babies and diapers? couldn't imagine it. Would you like to be in your 30s or your 40s? Oh, man, that was terrible. Early in my career, just working long hours all the time. It was just endless labor. Never got to do a thing. It was like I missed a whole decade, you know. 
back then when I was trying to get my career going. Well, how about, you know, in your 50s? Oh, my wife hated it when she was... It was okay for me, but she hated it. She was so unhappy when our kids left home. and Our marriage was really rough in our 50s. Well, how about your 60s? Well, my back began to get bad in my 60s, you know. Well, you know, would you like to die? Die! You know, I'm terrified of dying. They don't like being old. They didn't like being young. They didn't like being middle-aged. And they're terrified of dying. Have you known people like that? Unfortunately, there's a fair number. Men will seek death, but it will elude them. This is the punishment that God gives to evildoers. It's like the sting of a scorpion, and it lasts as long as it can last. It can last their whole life long. It's not that, that they're, they're punished with, you know, with being uh, you know, horribly killed or something like that. Their punishment is they have to live like that. Now, we have to think about this just a little bit more. Where does this come from? Where does this punishment come from? Who does this to them? It comes from the locusts. It comes from... Where does it come from? To themselves. That's part of the answer. Where does it come from? Look at the text. Don't look at me. It came from the abyss. It came from Satan. This is the punishment that Satan wreaks upon his own. He makes them miserable. He promises them excitement and life and whatever. And the truth is their lives are miserable. Oh, they may have you know, fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. And, and some of them may be indeed uh, happy, as uh, we would call happiness in this life, happy-go-lucky people. But by and large, the way of Satan is to wreak misery on his own. Do you see that? Because who is stricken by this? It's those who are not marked by the seal, the seal marking God's protection. Christians... Not to say that every Christian is happy all the time, you understand. But globally speaking, Christians are spared this misery. Because God won't let Satan do it to us. But Satan is free to harm his own, to sting them with this in his own way. Now, what I just did was take you through a test case on the book of Revelation. And what I just did was what is called idealist exegesis. That is to say, I looked for an ideal that holds in every generation. Was it true? Was, if this is correct, if it's taken from biblical imagery, that's what idealists do, and it's really that everybody does, a preterist and futurist, every interpretive school, looks for biblical images the way I just did to try to interpret what's happening. Do you think, if these principles are true, if you've agreed with what I've said, that it comes from the Bible, that's how Revelation works, do you think this held in the year 90 A.D.? you think it was important for the church in the year 90 or 95 A.D. to know this as it suffered persecution? That they're sealed and this particular affliction or infliction of pain by Satan couldn't strike them? Can you see how valuable that would be in 95 A.D.? Do you think it holds true in the last seven years of history or the, or, or the last times, the last generation of history? Will this be true? Is it true today, wherever we are, if we're in the last times or not? If... if Christ is to come in 200 years. Is it, is it true today? Was it true in the year 1500? Was it true in the year 900? 700? you agree this is a universal principle? And you are stepping along with me in the path of seeing the book of Revelation as holding out principles or ideals that apply to all ages. In the book of Revelation, <clears throat> we're on, under COPE, we're on step three, C-O-P, present the themes of the book. And here, if I can give you a bit of advice, if some of you wanted to teach the book of Revelation, if you have a teaching role in your church, 
or a Bible study of some kind, and somebody says, hey, let's do a study of the book of Revelation, I would urge you to try this. Spend three or four weeks on the book of Revelation developing the three or four main themes. That will whet their appetite. It will get you off the hook. It will give them the main points of the book of Revelation. And you won't get bogged down in the meaning of some of the difficult visions which uh, can lead to a great deal of debate and more heat than light. The first theme found all throughout the book of Revelation is that God gives comfort to the church in its struggle against evil. God gives comfort to the church in its struggle against evil. Now, the visions of the book of Revelation depict Satan attempting to devour, to test, to persecute, to destroy the church. But the visions also make it very clear that Satan is thwarted at every turn. Uh, maybe a place where we could see this right away is in Revelation 12, which we'll talk about in more detail later. But I want you to follow the outline of Revelation 12. We already started with it. A moment ago, you remember that uh, there is a woman who's pregnant and standing on the moon and so forth, and a, a dragon appears, ready to devour the Christ child. Verse 4 says, When she gave birth, her child was snatched up to heaven and to his throne. So Satan had a plan of devouring, destroying the Christ child, but that failed. We could think of Herod trying to kill the Christ child, right? Then the woman fled, verse 6 says, so he's tried and failed once so far. Then the woman fled into a desert place prepared for her by God, where she stayed 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. But Michael won. Now you have to understand one thing here, and that is that in the battle in heaven, it's not God against Satan, it's Michael against Satan. It's an archangel, Michael, against a former archangel, now archdemon, Satan. And even in the battle of archangels, Michael wins. You know, God doesn't even have to put his best troops at it, you see. I'll just send Michael. Michael's good enough. He'll take care of things. Now, Satan has lost twice. On to the next chapter. The dragon was hurled down. Verse 9, uh, sorry, next verse. A dragon was hurled down, and he came to the earth. And when he came to the earth, he accused the brothers. Verse 10, in the middle, it says, The accuser of our brothers accuses them before our God day and night. But he's been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Satan accuses the brothers, saying they're sinful, they're wicked, and they shouldn't be allowed into heaven. But he's silenced. The blood of the Lamb covers them basically says, yeah, they're guilty, but it's been taken care of. So now Satan's failed three times. He's failed to destroy Christ. He's failed to win battle in heaven. And third, he's failed to accuse the brothers successfully. Uh, then, in verse 13, it says that when the dragon had been hurled down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman got away. She was given two wings of a great eagle so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert. So now he's lost four times. And then, as he sees this occurring, verse 15 says that the serpent spewed water like a river to take the woman over, to sweep her away. But then he lost again. Number five, the earth opened its mouth, and she escaped. And then he was really mad, because he's a five-time loser. 
He's tried to kill Christ. He's tried to fight Michael. He's tried to accuse. He's tried to kill the woman. Nothing works. And he's really ticked. And so he goes to fight against the rest of her offspring. Now, Revelation 13 and 14 make it very clear that in the battle against the rest of the offspring, the rest of the offspring suffer real harm. Christians are persecuted. Christians are killed. But Satan is going to lose. And the church is comforted in that. Even in, the, even in the pain that the church experiences, we read that God will wipe every tear from the eyes of the saints. You wipe away a tear from a little child's eyes. They're crying. They fall down. They're forlorn. Their best friend doesn't like them anymore. You can comfort a child. Wipe away those tears and make them smile again. That's what God says. He will comfort us. He'll wipe away every tear. That seal will limit their suffering. And even if we die, he says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. And more than that, there's the comfort of knowing that God will avenge the blood of the saints. His cause will win the battle. So there are several lines of comfort. Satan's power is limited. He'll wipe away the tears from our eyes, and the evildoers will be punished. Now, this, some of these overlap a little bit, but second... Second theme is the victory of Christ and his allies over Satan and his allies. theme of judgment and of vengeance fits here. If somebody wanted to argue there are four themes, and the fourth theme is judgment on evildoers, I, wouldn't, I would not argue with them. I'm just putting it underneath the victory of Christ because the defeat of Satan is the victory of Christ. The two go together. They're not separate phenomena. The first half of the book shows, chapters 1 to 11, show... There is hope of victory, even in the midst of suffering and struggle and persecution, because, as we'll see in the second half of class tonight, um, God sovereignly controls even the suffering. And then in chapter 19, for just to jump to another, verses 11 to 21, we have Jesus as the king, riding on a great white horse, on a war horse, wielding his two-edged sword. And now nobody can find where we are in the outline. Has everybody found where we are? I see pages... Flying right and left. Everybody okay? Everybody know we turned a page? Okay, everybody's cool? All right, good. It troubles me when I see you flipping and then flipping back. You know, some of them are going, tss, 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 tss. we're okay. We just turned a page. On we go. 19, 11 to 21. Jesus is uh, the rider on the white horse, the war horse, wielding his two-edged sword. His robe is dipped with blood because... He has slain his enemies. His robe is, is, is touched by the blood of his enemies. And the devil's allies fall in the next scene, one by one. The Antichrist and the beast are cast into the lake of fire. The harlot is, is ruined. And the word is hallelujah, for her smoke goes up forever because her doom is certain. Foul fire falls from heaven, devouring the army of the devil, chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. And they're cast in the lake of fire. Victory is sure. Third thing is, in all this, a vision of Christ that prompts worship. How many songs that you may sing come from the book of Revelation? A handful, one or two, or many? What do you think? Many. I once gave an assignment to one of my students who was musical, wanted to make... Uh, do a little extra work to find how many songs he could locate that had themes from the book of Revelation that were based on a verse or an image from the book of Revelation. You know, you know how he came up with? Fifty. Fifty. 
And I lost the list. So I've been upset about it ever since. I don't know where I put it. Fifty different ones. Lots of them. Do you know the choruses? Chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 have two very close together. We have things like chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's a classical hymn. Then a little bit later, we have in 4.11 that, that uh, sort of popular Christian psalm that is always played far too slowly. Thou art worthy. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Just three verses later. We have worthy is the Lamb. We have a song about that. We have salvation is to God and to the Lamb in chapter 7. And, and then there's one talk about classical. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. See, some of you may be already moving your hands to conduct the Hallelujah Chorus, chapter 11, verse 15. Now have come salvation and power and the kingdom of God and of His Christ. There's a chorus that uses that from chapter 12. Great and marvelous are your deeds, just and true are your ways. There's another chorus that's used. You are... Lord of lords and King of kings. King of kings and Lord of lords. Back to Hallelujah Chorus. And then we have Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Some of you might use that in worship in your churches from chapter 19. There are many, many more. Many more. That's just a sampling. But it's not just songs. The book of Revelation is full of titles. Titles of Christ. We'll see some of them in uh, a moment from the book of from the first chapter of Revelation, but there are quite a few others uh, that are used. Well, I'll just say chapters 1, 2, and 3. We'll look at those, some of those in a minute. But there are many occasions in the book of Revelation to see Christ in his, in his grandeur and to worship as a consequence. Now, what I'm doing, I want to label what I'm doing, and I, know, I want to be very candid with you. I am saying things today that you're inclined to agree with, but I want, you to, I want to be honest with you and say that my approach is really not exactly the approach that some of you have learned. What I'm doing, one more time, is called idealism. And if I could take the E from COPE and just walk through that with you for a minute so you can evaluate, and the book you're reading for the course, The Message of Revelation, is idealist. If you've been reading it, he labels himself as an idealist. Um, and it's important to recognize you know that with candor. There are four views on how to interpret the book of Revelation. We've hinted at them already so far. The preterist says the fulfillment of the book of Revelation lies in the past. The John's visions describe the persecution of Christians by Rome in the first century, and a true blue preterist, a hardcore preterist, would say, and it doesn't do much besides. The weakness of preterism, of course, is that the book seems to predict the future, especially the later chapters, unmistakably seem to describe what will come. So most preterists actually are willing to agree or walk part way with futurists and idealists. The historicist view, one more time, says that Revelation is a symbolic preview of the church's history from the first to the second comings of Christ. Each vision represents something in church history, and you march century by century. The weakness is that uh, people tend to get very uh, much centered on their own culture and their own time. And historicists, let me, let me ask you to just take a guess. 
a, sorry, a preterist, a preterist writing in the year 1800. When do you think, in Germany, where do you think they thought most of the visions were going to be fulfilled? Take a wild guess. In Germany, that's right. And you get a you get a historicist uh, writing in Brazil. Guess what place they're going to find a lot of the fulfillments? They're going to find them in Brazil. Now, if they're writing in 1800, what year do you think they anticipate history coming to a climax? About 1810, 1820. If you have somebody writing in 1968, when do you think they're going to say the end is going to come? In their lifetime. That's a, that's a good, safe answer. People are always putting it in their lifetime. They may say we're in the last seven years, they may say we're in the last generation, but they're always saying in my lifetime. Now, of course, as an idealist, I agree with them. And I say, yes, it will be in your lifetime, and in lifetimes earlier, and in lifetimes later. But they say, no, it's got to be one-for-one -one correspondence. Futurist says the book of Revelation describes a distressing and chaotic period shortly before the return of Christ, known as the Tribulation. Seven years of tribulation, followed by the return of Christ to reestablish the kingdom of Israel and to rule the world with a rod of iron, to at last have a literal physical reign a thousand years by Christ. What can we say about this one? My chief difficulty here with futurists, hardcore futurists, is that it doesn't seem to do justice to the book of Revelation, as it says at the beginning, blessed is the one who reads. Not blessed will be those who read, but it says blessed are all who read. Or you could take, uh, for example, a look at uh, chapter 22, verse 10. Crucial passage for interpreting the book. Revelation 22, verse 10. Very often misquoted, I will say. It reads this way. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy or the prophecy of this book because the time is near. And, and the uh, interpreters say, you see... The book says the time is near. So here I stand in the year 1912, and I say to you, the time is near. Or I stand in the year 1530, the time is near. Or I stand in the year 1990 or 2002, whatever year, the time is near. So we can be sure, they say, that it's coming in our generation. Now, what's the problem with that? They've been saying it for many years. That's true. That's absolutely true. But you could even put a finer point on it. The time is near, 22.10 says. The finer point, the sharper point is, the time was near in, 22, in, in the year 95 A.D. the time was near. When he says the time is near, when somebody says the time is near, and they say, see, here we are in the year 1960, the time is near, they're missing the point that Revelation is when the book was written, the time was near. That's when it was near. He was saying to the seven churches, the time is near. Meaning, this book is relevant now. Now, it doesn't only mean it was near then. Again, the principle is that it's always near. The person who says it in the year 1950 is not all wrong. They're right. The time is near. But it was also true in the year 95 and in the year 950. This book is for all Christians. That's my viewpoint. That's called idealism. And the reasons for idealism I've been giving you all throughout, but let me just define it for you. It says, the idealist view says that the vision is fulfilled in the first century at the return of Christ and at all times in between. But the book of Revelation describes principles or ideals that always hold throughout the age of 
the gospel throughout this age. It portrays the cosmic conflict between Satan and God and Satan and the church. And that battle is always raging. The weakness with idealism is that idealists can get too agreeable and can become vague. The real problem is they get real vague and they talk about general principles and they don't get specific in their analysis maybe of the times. But I do believe it's correct because one three says all who read this book are blessed. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. 22.10, as I just quoted, says the time is near, always near. All throughout the letters of the seven churches, there's this emphasis. The Spirit is speaking. Not it did speak or will speak, but the Spirit is speaking to the seven churches throughout this book. And, of course, chapter 19.10, which says, alluded to it last week, or quoted it last week, the book of Revelation is about Christ. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And that's what the book is about.